with you this morning, please open it to the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be uh, reading from verse 10 of that first chapter down through verse 5 of the second chapter here in just one moment. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can find a Bible in the pocket of the pew in front of you. And 1 Corinthians 1 can be found on page 895 of that Bible. Um, We will be looking at that in, in just one moment. Uh, pray that uh, this is beneficial for you all. Um, sorry about some of the technical difficulties we're having, but we'll, we'll work through those. Um, as you're opening there, uh, we, we stand in a former Catholic church, and, and many people here have been former Catholics, and if you talk to them, they will tell you that uh, Catholics have a very interesting way of, of distinguishing a couple different types of sin. There's venial sins, and there are cardinal sins, these mortal sins. Mortal sins are grievous and heinous. They include basically seven that the Catholic Church has put in this category. Pride, greed, envy, wrath, lust, gluttony, and sloth. So they have three, in order for those to actually pertain to you, they've got three qualifications for them. It must be one of those heinous and grievous sins. Smaller sins are not including, those are venial sins, but these are cardinal sins. These are mortal sins. So you must be one of those sins. Secondly, it's got to be done with full understanding. If, if you are ignorant of those being sins, if you're a tribal person who has known nothing of the Lord's teaching, then a lot of these things are spared from you because you just, you wouldn't know better. And the Catholic Church recognizes that. And third, it must be done with full consent of the will. So it, it has to be what we might call sort of a cold-blooded action. You, you know what you're doing. It's not a spur-of-the-moment thing. You don't just murder somebody because you're angry, but you've thought about it, you've considered it, you've given your will over to it. It's not just an impulse that you had. Mortal sins, incredibly serious, can be forgiven through penance and through the Mass and the taking in of grace. Venial sins, less important. As Protestants, we think all that sounds kind of funny. It doesn't, we don't, we don't think that there's two distinctions in sins, sort of two vast levels of sins. We tend to think that any sin can put somebody in mortal danger if they do not repent. And we would quote something like James 2.10 in this, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. So all sins are mortal sins. All sins are worthy of condemnation. But at the same time, let's be really honest with ourselves. We do indeed think that some sins are more serious than others. We know that some sins carry with it a penalty or or just imply a distinction of degree. We've gone through the Sermon on the Mount recently. And even though we've heard Jesus say, anger, murder, they, they kind of come from the same root. Nevertheless, even as we went through those, we were clear that there still exists a distinction between anger and murder. Those are not the same things. They, they come from the same place. They, they are still sins. And what Jesus is trying to say is you can't, just because you haven't murdered somebody doesn't mean that you can blow off anger. We still would have to believe that there is a distinction between being angry with somebody and murdering them. We know that one of those actions is much worse than the other. The same could be applied to adultery and lust. Yes, lust is wrong and it's bad, but it is not the same as actually going out and committing adultery. So in our heads, even as good Protestants, we would say, 
all sins kind of exist on something of an equal footing, all sins can condemn you, we still believe that there is something of an order to sins. There's, there are sins that are worse, more grievous, more evil than others. So what should we make of these sort of serious sins that we find in 1 Corinthians? We mentioned many of them last time. Which ones are the more serious ones? If you were to make a list, even not just of the sins found in 1 Corinthians, but of sins found in the world, certainly you have something in your head of things that are worse than other things. Where, how would you order them? How would you arrange them? Sexual immorality would probably be high on our list. As we find it in 1 Corinthians, as we see it in the culture around us, we react strongly to those things. Certainly, things like murder and adultery are really high on the list. Other things, less so. Paul, in this book, even mentions that taking the Lord's Supper unworthily is actually leading people toward being sick and being killed. Like, the Lord clearly thinks that this is an a immense sin and the penalties are being borne out in real time. And if we were to go through the book and we were to label the kind of sins that we find here and say, hey, this is a more important sin, this is a lesser sin, there's probably one huge group of sins that Paul seems to find immensely important that we, for a variety of reasons, don't think is nearly as important as the New Testament holds it out to be. Of all the sins that the Corinthians have, he starts with this one. As though, if you read no further in my letter, this is the thing that you have to understand and you've got to get down first. This is something that creeps through all of the other sins. It pops up everywhere. Factions and divisions. You can't have those before he gets to any sort of sexual sin, before he gets to their misappropriation of spiritual gifts, before he gets to disorder in the worship service, before he gets to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that they have completely are on the verge of completely botching. He says, this needs to be addressed first. If you're new as a Christian, this probably seems a bit out of place. After all, you can look around and there are thousands upon thousands of different Christian denominations. And even within those denominations, churches have distinctions between one another, factions within the denominations that want to lead denominations in different ways, that want to lead them in different directions. Even within those churches, so not just denominations, not just churches within the denominations, but then within denominations or within churches themselves, there are factions. You've heard stories of churches splitting because a group of people didn't like the color of carpet that was picked out. And I'm telling you, that's not like an old wives' tale. That happens. Not here. Yet. <laughs> or ever, right? But it, it happens. I was in a church once, which I was not the pastor of, that had a Sunday school devoted to, basically, they were supposed to be doing other things, but the real time that was spent there was devoted to complaining about the pastor. That's all they did. They basically went through a litany. He had to go and sit in the class and talk to them about it. And it wasn't like the young people. It was, it was an, a former deacon who ought to have known better spending an hour just taking him to the woodshed. 
we think that that's like not cool, as the kids in the 1820s might say, that's very uncouth. But we would imagine that if they were sitting around talking about their present and future sexual escapades, that would be much worse. I don't think that Paul thinks that's true. There are many bad faith things happening in Corinth. But Paul is unequivocal and anything but ambivalent. There can be no factions among you. There can be no divisions, no dissensions. So how do we work at Crossway to secure that? As unified as we believe we are, as we think we are, how can we work to make sure that we avoid these sort of factions? Let us read the word of our Lord and see if we can't glean good things from it this morning. The word of the Lord to the Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. Or, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that, I, that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness 
and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let God's blessing be upon this reading of his word. What can we do to avoid factions? First, I want to have you confirm the Catholicity of your confession. Affirm and confirm. We got to keep the C bit in there. Not affirm. Don't affirm it. Confirm it. The Catholicity of your confession. I do think probably need to explain the word Catholicity there. I, I wanted it to be there. It wasn't just because I picked C's out, but I like the word Catholicity. It matters. When I say Catholicity, I mean small c. Catholic, I mean universal. It is the, the same sort of understanding, the same mind, the same judgment that has been part of the historic creeds of the church. We stand in line with it. We are orthodox in that sense. We stand in line, not with just the recent Baptist tradition, but we stand in line with the historic confessions of the church on the major things that happen. That's one of the reasons why this past year we included those basic confessions and creeds into our own statement of faith. We did that not just because we wanted to, you know, strengthen our statement of faith, which is certainly true, but because it also makes it very clear that we are linked to the entire corpus and tradition of the work of God being done in the church from its very founding. We are not like Mormons and other cults who think that the church has gone so wrong to the side and so quickly wrong that it needs an entire reboot or entire rebuild or retooling from the ground up. Even as Protestants, Martin Luther and others, we believed that we stand in line and not the Roman church with the historic confessions of the faith. We claim Augustine as ours. We claim Athanasius as ours. We're not Roman Catholic, but we are indeed small c Catholic. We don't believe that the Pope has any extra authority. We don't stand in line with a number of Roman Catholic doctrines, but we do want to be Catholic. And that's important because Paul insists here that we be of the same mind and judgment. You agree. What do we agree with? We're in the same mind and judgment. Our unity is important, and it is an entailment of the gospel. And this means that we need to calibrate the importance of unity. Because it's quite clear in the letter that we're going to read that factions are called for. One of the things that the Corinthians have done wrong is they haven't factioned enough. They allow grievous sexual sin to be in their presence and haven't done anything about it. They haven't disciplined the man, even though Paul thinks that they ought to have, and they, Paul quite clearly thinks not only ought they have done it, but they know they ought to have done it. And they haven't. So it's not like sins can just be overlooked. Sins can just be brushed aside in the name of unity. We can overestimate unity. The question then becomes, how do we know when we are to have these factions and when we're not? How do we know when we are to separate and when we don't? I'm going to give you two quick rules for that that are not going to help you at all. Rule number one, you need to have a 
quite high burden of proof when it comes to having the truth on your side. When it comes to doctrinal matters, that means you might not know perfectly, but you've got to be really assured that you are right in this. You can't say, "Ah, it's like 60-40, but I'm going to split with the church on this. No, you've got to be really strong in that area. Secondly, or kind of in, in line with that as well, when it comes to moral matters, you cannot make those judgments based on assumption, based on rumor. You have to do it based on at least a modicum of truth. You've got to at least try and see if what was being said is actually true. If you hear Pastor X affirms this, well, if he's your pastor, you shouldn't just take someone's word for it. Call him. Ask him. Talk to him. Find out what the truth actually is. Now, that's kind of basic stuff. The second bit is also quite unhelpful, but filled with common sense, I would like to think, and that's simply this. If you are going to split, that split has to be healthier than not splitting. It has to be better than not splitting. It has to be more important that you split off and separate yourself than you stay together. That's what Paul's saying with the sexual sin. He says, you can't have him in your midst and think that you are modeling Christ rightly to the world. It is a shame that has been brought upon the church. And it's more dangerous to have him with you and to see the gangrene of that sin spread among you than it is to excise him out. Now, those are two easy rules. I think that they're pretty common sense. But of course, that means we've got to understand how important is unity. Where do we put disunity and ranking of sins? Where do we put it when it comes to these sorts of issues? There's no list, unfortunately. I checked even in the concordance of my Bible, and it's just, it's not there. There's no list for these sort of things. But I'm going to tell you that Paul thinks that it's quite important. Not only is it the first thing that he lists here in 1 Corinthians, but he doesn't talk about this with just about any sin. Listen to what he says here to Titus in Titus 3. As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. There are very few sins that Paul talks that strongly about. In Galatians 5, the famous passage directly before the fruit of the Spirit, Paul lists the works of the flesh, and he says they're evident. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, in that list, there are a full five things that are given over to factions and dissensions, enmity, strife, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. Paul sees this as inherently dangerous, and he sees it as very near to the people of God. The question then, if Paul sees it as a grave issue and important, why don't we? And I'll tell you, while we can overestimate it, My running assumption is that the vast majority of people underestimate it. Why is that? I think that there are a handful of reasons. Most of it are just related to the culture that we're in. The philosophy that has been handed down to us in modernism and postmodernism, which you do not want me to go into at this present time, puts us in a position of thinking that we are the arbiters of the truth, 
And we can thank a Frenchman for that, Rene Descartes. He's not actually French. He might be Belgian. I don't know. But somebody from Europe really messed us up. And now we all think individually. And this is built then through the culture. Our culture provides for us a never-ending supply of options so that everything can be tailored for us. There's 31 flavors of ice cream wherever you want to go. And you can get a car with all of the gadgets and all the colors that you want specified before it is ever delivered to the lot. We have shows that tell us how to knock down walls in our house so that we can have everything we want to to our exact specifications all the time. And that has naturally bled into the church. Churches naturally now offer multiple services. You an early riser, you want to get it over with? Man, we got an 8 o'clock service for that. You a late riser, it's okay. We got an 11.30 service as well. You want contemporary music? That's a little bit later because those people are lazy. You want traditional ones? I know that you're older and you want to get up earlier. That's at the 8.30 service. You can tailor make your worship service. You don't like it here? You can go elsewhere down the road. The church has, has tailored itself to this to invite more people in. You get to choose your experience before the Lord. And after all, the church is Protestant, aren't we? Aren't we formed by faction and division? There's thousands of denominations. So why does it even matter? There are millions of different churches that do millions of different things. Such churches are unified as much by preference and choice as they are the more important matters. And I'm not doubting that those churches are actually informed by the more important matters. But if you don't think that churches that offer just rock music in the morning are not informed and gathering people together because of that rock music, that that's not at least a major reason why those churches exist. You're wrong. And we're not better. We just have a different set of preferences. But we need to work against those things. And all of those are fair points. How are we unified then? What is actually supposed to unite us? And this is why our Catholicity is so important. It's what we think about the major things and how we judge them to be major. Have the same mind. What do you consider? What do you think of? What, what, what do you focus on the most? And how do you judge it to be important? We shouldn't end up distinguishing ourselves and defining ourselves by what differentiates us from everybody else. Our unity is important. And therefore, our identity should be in what unites us to all of those other churches. <clears throat> our confession of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal in glory and dignity, same in nature, distinct in person, the nature of the incarnation and the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the way in which he has saved us by dying on the cross, according to the scriptures, for our sins, being buried and resurrected on the third day, according to the scriptures. The necessity of faith and repentance and the gift, pure gift of our salvation. The centrality of Scripture is God's word. These are the things that ought to define us and that we ought to be unified in. This is the thing that we have to have as the same mind and same judgment. This is the Catholicity of our confession and it must be central. We make a lot out of secondary issues. People choose churches based on secondary issues. Famously, my family heard, heard a DJ on the radio <clears throat> explaining how he, he was praying to God about how he was going to find a church. And he showed up at a church, and the church offered him a Diet Coke, and he's like, that's it. That's the one. He's not coming here. 
I don't even have Diet Coke. I love Diet Coke, but we don't have it this morning. So, like, that's choosing a church based solely off of some, like, tiddly, inconceivably small preference. Maybe it was a great church. Maybe he was choosing between some very great churches, and this one happened to have Diet Coke, and he's like, that tips it in the favor. I can see it, maybe not for Diet Coke, but for other things. <clears throat> Listen, I'm a loyal Baptist, and I, I've listened to most of the arguments for, for Baptist and most of the arguments for pedo-baptism, and I'm going to tell you, lest the Lord Jesus show up in front of me, I don't think that I'm going to be moved. Now, if he were to show up and say, you were wrong, I would say, pardon. And, and we would be, I would, I would gladly start baptizing all my kids immediately. I'd take them out to the river today, and we'd do it. Shy of that, I doubt I'm going to be convinced. But that is not what defines us. It can't be what defines us. It might be part of the definition. It's part of what distinguishes us from other people. But our identity has to be fully and totally in these things where we can be of the same mind and judgment with others. You know, does Paul want you to follow him? He talks about, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ, or I follow Paul. Yes, Paul wants you to follow him. He's going to say later in this book, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me. His point is that those factions don't make any sense. I follow Paul or I follow Cephas or I follow Apollos. You're all following the same thing. Do you think that the apostles are distinct in what they're preaching and teaching? They're not. Apollos preaches the same gospel that Paul preaches, the same gospel that Peter preaches, and it's all about Christ. Is Christ divided? The centrality of who Jesus is and what he has done should be enough, and that should unify us together. <clears throat> the gospel and the gospel alone, not baptism as important as that is, important as Paul thinks that it is, and certainly he thinks it is important. He doesn't care about it as much as he cares about everyone living in line with the gospel, and factions deny the gospel. How does it deny the gospel? How does it deny this central entailment of the Trinity, of Christology, of our doctrine of salvation? How does it deny it? Well, Paul is going to go on and explain that. So secondly, secondly, ponder the peculiarity of what we preach. Ponder the peculiarity of what we preach. The ending of verse 17 is a little bit too explicit here in the ESV. It says, lest the, Christ, the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It really should just be emptied. And then you wonder, what is it emptied of? And what happens when you preach Christ with words of eloquent wisdom is you deny the cross all things. Not just its power. You deny the cross its meaning. You deny the cross its import. You deny the cross all of it. Why? I think what Paul's getting at here, and what he, he's getting at basically for the last three sections that we're going to be talking about, is that the cross itself is meant to be baffling and to go against every single expectation that people could have. This is what Paul means by all of the verses that flow from this. The cross is folly and stupidity to everyone. And that matters. And it wasn't just an offshoot of of what happened at the cross. It was purposeful by Jesus and by God. It is hard for us to comprehend just how stupid and foolish the idea of a Savior willingly going and dying on a cross would have been to every single person in the known world in the first century. 
Greeks and Romans were fine with people laying down their lives. Go read their stories. They're filled with it. People lay down their lives all the time. Their heroes will lay down their lives in order to help people, in order to save people, in order to establish the glory of their city-state, in order to show the worthiness of Rome. They will lay down their lives. But they do so in battle. They lay down their lives by falling to the sword. And Jesus simply doesn't do this. It's not in the context of war. It's not in the context of fighting. He simply lays his life down. He does it quietly and submissively. His death wasn't filled with worldly glory. He wasn't shot through with arrows. He wasn't fending off hundreds of people. But he received without any fight the most ignominious death imaginable. Such a man is impossible for Greek people to follow. It goes against every instinct and religious motivation that they ever would have had and they ever would have had placed in front of them. And Jews weren't in any better of a situation They're also fine with martyrs, but their great men were never martyred because God delivered them. Moses delivered from Pharaoh. David delivered from Saul. Daniel delivered from the lion's den. These men would never have gone to the death on a cross because that was was for accursed people and accursed by God. Jesus, as the Jews pointed out, was able to save others but he was not able to get himself off that cross. Why follow him? The wisdom of the world, the thoughts and the desires of the world had already rejected God. And so God was never going to allow anyone to come back to him. They couldn't ever come back to him through their own worldly wisdom. They couldn't think themselves back to him. He couldn't ever use worldly wisdom to bring them back because that would only lead them away. Thinking, Paul would say later, they were wise, they became fools. The cross of Jesus would have been revolting to them emotionally, politically, theologically, morally, psychologically, in every way possible. It would have filled them and terrified them and stupefied every fiber of their body. And this means that the mechanism of the cross was important. To uphold God's full plan, Jesus couldn't die in battle. He couldn't die in an accident. It couldn't even be the sort of purpose-filled, human-type sacrifice that you find in other cultures, where everybody knows what's going on. The people who are leading the person they're going to kill know this is a sacrifice. It couldn't have been that. It couldn't have been that. It had to be opaque. It had to be misunderstood. It had to appear stupid and foolish to everyone who would hear about it. The cross is the perfect mechanism for that. And therefore, by the wisdom of the world, the world itself is crushed because they will never know God through that wisdom. They will never know him through it. They can't. They hear the word of the cross and it's folly. To those who are perishing, it seems stupid and simple. And so Paul says, look around. Where is the scribe? Where is the wise Greek or Hebrew person? Look around. Where are they? Do you see them in your midst? And you would rightly then ask yourself, if that's true, then who would believe? Paul answers that very clearly. Those who are called. Those who are called believe. They would believe the folly that no one else could believe, not because of anything in them, but because God called them to it. God sent out a call and drew his people to himself. We do well to remember this. There are times when factions will happen for good reason, 
But the majority of times factions happen in churches, majority of time that factions happen amongst denominations, majority of time factions happen, they do not happen for good reasons. They happen for poor reasons. They happen because people value their wisdom, their opinions, and their intelligence too much. They overvalue their own understanding of things. They devalue others' understanding of things. They see themselves as more enlightened and have little time for other people. The oddity of what we preach, the peculiarity of what we preach ought to humble us. The message itself is secure only in the calling of God because no one believes this by their own wisdom and understanding. Thirdly, consider the context of your calling. In verses 26 to 31, Paul turns to them specifically. Paul asks for them to look around and see what makes up their numbers. Not many of you were wise, he says. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You are the lowest. Now, I'm not, he's, not, he's saying, I'm not skimming off the top of the Greek population here, guys. And you know this. I mean, it's kind of insulting, but Paul's basically saying, like, you guys aren't the top of the heap. As far as worldly standards go, you're the bottom. And as a matter of fact, in Greek world, in the Greek-speaking world, there was no concern for the poor. There was no concern for the bottom classes. They were practically invisible. They, They weren't cared for. They weren't sought to have mercy played out upon them. They were overlooked. Paul says, you were as those things that are nothing before them, but God chose those very things for that point. God wanted to make the values and the ideals and the desires of this world worthless, to show them as empty and vain as he knew they were. So his calling went out to the humble and to the poor, to those who are nothing, so that he could make them into something, and that those who were something by worldly standards, by worldly wisdom, by worldly birth, by all the good things that the world holds dear could be brought low and made into nothing. So the preaching of the world and those who respond is clear. There will be no boasting before God. No one comes to the cross on their own understanding. No one comes to the cross because of their wisdom. No one comes to the cross because of their moral goodness. It is only the work of God who then can boast. Jesus Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He, this is as close as Paul gets to saying from the beginning to the last, Jesus Christ did everything for you. What have you done? It's, it's nothing. Isn't such boasting really the center of factions and divisions? It seems like this is a long way from where Paul started, but isn't it the heart of it? Why are factions and divisions started? Even if you're intelligent, even if you're wise in the way of the world, even if you are the most noble in birth, everyone who comes to the cross must first realize the worthlessness of such things. When we rightly remember the gospel and remember who we were when we believed, we would be slow to sow division and foment dissent amongst the people of God. Listen, think back to your own conversion. No one is converted to Christ by killing it in the world. Right? No one's walking through this world with staying alive playing in their head, right? 
and strutting along thinking everything's going well. Every aspect of my life could not possibly be better. I probably need to repent and believe in Jesus. Something happens along the way. Even for people who are rich and good and and people who have, have everything going for them, something has to happen along the way that drives them to believe that repentance and faith and something better has to be be present. None of us came without disaster on the horizon or discontentedness in our spirit or sin's weight upon our chest or disillusionment with the world. Even if you were wise, even if you were of noble birth, you were brought low before you came to Christ. All of this is nothing of our own doing. We have no reason for pride, no reason for separation from anyone else. All of us, every single one of us, was called by the same God, bought with the same blood, and in that end, we should also then see, number four, see the strength of the Spirit. Paul is likewise clear on his own strength and standing. He didn't sound like the Greek rhetoricians. He, he, he wasn't speaking in such a way that he sounded so sure in his knowledge and and he was persuading people to come in. Now, Paul will talk later about persuading them, but in a completely different way. He's not doing it by luring them with sweet words. Rather, his his speech was plain and unadorned and straightforward and to the point and simple. He's not going to dress up the cross for them. It was centered on Jesus Christ and in the preaching of Jesus Christ directly on the cross. The very center of what we are to be, our unity and our identity, was preached as such from the very first. But it's not only what he said, but it was even in how he spoke. He says, I came to you in fear and in trembling and with weakness. We don't know why Paul felt like he showed up that way. Maybe that was just his normal aspect of preaching. A lot of people think that this was, this was after his time spent in Athens and perhaps his, his speech at the Areopagus didn't go and end quite the way he wanted to and so he ditched that sort of that wise speech that he might have been using there in order. I don't think that that's the case. I think that Paul basically just says like, I showed up and I preached this message that shouldn't have appealed to any of you. And people can get conned by a lot of stuff. People buy in to dumb things all the time all the time. Why? When you, get, you know, you hear of these schemes and these plans that people have, and even in, in hindsight, they'll be like, that was so dumb. I don't know why I fell for it. Why did they fall for it? Because the person who was getting them to fall for it was incredibly good. It's the long con. That's why they're called, it's con is confidence. It means confidence, man. He was, he builds your confidence in him. You buy into the person as much as you buy into the message. And Paul says, there ain't none of that here. Not only did I preach a message that shouldn't have appealed to you, I myself should not have appealed to you. There was nothing in me that would have lured you into this. So the outcome of that, your faith can only be built on one thing, the result of the Spirit working in your life. What else are you going to attribute it to? Paul doesn't mean that the demonstration of the Spirit and of power was that he did some sort of weird magic tricks on the side. 
I preached you Christ crucified, and here's my proof. Because that goes directly against everything that he's just said. Jews demand signs. If he's walking around healing people, performing miracles, doing all these wondrous things, there's your signs. That's not what Paul means. When he says there's a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, he means look at what you bought into. Look at who you are, look at the message, and look at who brought it to you. And think, why do I believe this? And Paul's answer is very clear. You believe it because the Spirit worked in you, convicting you. Convicting you of sin, convicting you of the truth, convicting you of of the presence of Jesus in your life. That's what happened. Your faith rests as all of ours does, not in the power of men, not in the eloquence of any preacher, not in the beauty of the word of God. It rests entirely in the spirit of God. Why then make factions and have this sort of party spirit? Why place yourself above brothers and sisters by separating off and cordoning yourself off from one another? What Paul has been steadily doing is proving that any such division and faction within the true body of Christ lacks any foundation whatsoever. You might have them, but it makes no sense, and it's antithetical to the gospel. It's antithetical to the core of what the gospel says. It's antithetical to how it's been preached. It's antithetical to everything that it should be. All of it is a work of God. The most noble of them, the weakest of them, the wisest of them, the most foolish of them all find themselves there for the exact same reason and have the exact same validity to be there. The Spirit of God has worked in them. And there is, might have been a lot that's changed in 2,000 years. The culture has changed. Like, we don't look at the cross the same way. The cross is not this insidious, cruel device. The cross is a symbol of hope and love and mercy and kindness. But at the same time, absolutely nothing has changed. The message of the cross is always going to be foolishness to those who are perishing. It's always going to be that. And we should never try to change that. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. To those who are perishing, it's strange and odd and weak and worthless. So when you come to understand who Jesus is and to follow him. You come to it not because of your worth, not because of your wisdom, not because of your merit. There is nothing to set you above your brother or sister at all. You come to it wholly because God has called you in his kindness and his goodness to understand and to see the beauty and the glory of God in Jesus Christ and to know the worth of his redemption. That's it. You come to know Christ by the power of the Spirit. This is the ground of our unity. The same call, the same Lord, the same Father, the same Spirit working in each one of us. And family, God has been really good to us. Not just in the things that we have, not in the gifts, not in our our financial position, not in the the wonderful music team that we've got, the the place that we have. All those things are true, but he's also been good in what he has kept from us. These things, factions and dissensions, have been notably absent ever since I've been here. And that has nothing to do with me. I just can't speak to it beforehand. But I think it was probably true beforehand. Notably absent. Don't for a second think that pride doesn't work insidiously in you and in your brothers and sisters. 
all churches are good at sometime. Work hard to avoid factions and dissensions. Praise God for the work that he has done to keep us from these things. But work to keep it so. Let us pray. Father God, all who have come to you know you and do so because of your great love and calling on their lives. It is your gracious, powerful will and your calling that has drawn us to you and the work of the Spirit and the redemption that is in Jesus Christ applied to us that that makes us live. How then can we ever stand over or aside from one another? None of us is different in this. None better. We are all together united in our God and the gospel. Let this not just be something that we declare, but let it be something that we demonstrate in lives of love amongst all of our people and amongst all of your people. Let us serve one another and care for one another without distinction or discrimination, not concerned with status or appearance, but moved and fashioned by the gospel. In this, we ask all these things for our good and for the glory of the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.